what's happened is people, it's almost like rediscovering yourself in the world. And I think landscape architects have the opportunity to help people do that with our work. From the Harvard Graduate School of Design, this is Future of the American City. I'm Charles Waldheim. We're here today with landscape architect Lori Olin. Lori joins us today to discuss his new book, Essays on Landscape. Lori, welcome. Thank you, Charles. It's great to be here. It's lovely to see you again. Thanks so much for doing this. So the new, the new book, Essays on Landscape, features a baker's dozen, 13 essays uh, organized uh, chronologically over two decades from the late 1980s through uh, 2018. Um, you know, Laurie, you were um, among the world's most uh, prominent practicing landscape architects. Um, you've built a range of canonical uh, works of landscape architecture. Uh, you've taught and provided, you know, pedagogic leadership for the field over five decades um, uh, at, at, at a couple of notable institutions. Um, you've received virtually every uh, award or honor the field can bestow. Why return to your writing now? Um, well... <laughs> Why return to writing now? Because uh, I there's all these things you suddenly think you should have said, or you have changed your mind about, or that you think um, are interesting. You know, I I I would say that you know I had 35 or six years before I was a landscape architect, and then I practiced for 45 or six or so, and you know that's a long time. And there were different episodes in that, in those both of those periods. But I, I felt at a certain point of wanting to refresh myself and step away from something I had done so long and look on at other things. I'm also hoping to draw and paint a little bit more again because I did that in some of the earlier lives I had. But but so why now? Um, well, because a lot of people have written things since I started writing and have sort of changed the discourse, elevated the level, and now I think one can sort of more like graduate school. You can talk, you're not dealing with beginners anymore. <laughs> I know, I know one of the things that we've discussed is the, the you know, returning to one's work after a decade or two uh, remove and being maybe surprised by what you had written or uh, maybe even coming to contradict yourself in retrospect. Um, uh, how much of the essays have you reworked? How much revision went into this volume? There's only a couple of these essays. They were edited, uh, not heavily, but uh, because they were edited once before. But um, there's only a couple that I added to about probably a third of these essays at least were all originally just slide lectures and talks that I gave. And I had extensive notes. But the difference between a slide lecture and writing something out, they go through a transformation because you don't have the pictures anymore which carry a lot of the burden of your, your presentation and, um, or, or persuasion, if there is any. And so you suddenly have to find vocabulary and diction to express what you hope the pictures were doing for you. So, so the talks, turn to turn those into actual pieces of writing that, that are more articulate than the way one normally speaks with all the pauses and ums and changes of... Uh, on, you know, run-on sentences that when you see a transcription of yourself talking, you can't believe how 
it, how what a muddle it is. And yet, when you write, it has to be clear. And so, so I did sort of rework some that way because just to turn them into coherent uh, thoughts sequentially. And then one or two, uh, uh, there's a couple that have the the, the endless toing and froing about meaning and the purpose of one is chastised and so then you come back and say, well, I better say that better, or, well, maybe you're right, but I disagree. And so there's a couple of the essays that uh, actually uh, do intertwine that way and go back and forth. And I did, there was one that I delivered and, and uh, one of my colleagues was so upset that I thought, oh, well, gee, how did I upset him? So, so I reread it and I thought, oh yeah, I better. So I, I did put a different ending on it. <laughs> <laughs> So, so that, I hope that answers your question to some degree. It 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 does indeed. I think it also suggests why the book is so timely. You know, I mean, uh, on the one hand, you know, uh, the book, as I mentioned, is organized chronologically. Uh, each of these essays have had their own lives, as you say, as you know, teaching instruments, uh, lectures, ultimately journal articles, chapters in books, etc. But gathering them together, I'm struck by your choice to organize them chronologically, um, and yet how the these themes, which seem to be perennial in your thought, uh, are so clearly evident across the two decades. So, you know, you, you've obviously written quite a lot on the history of especially English and American parks and gardens, um, both 19th and 20th century, both romantic and modern. Uh, you have a deep interest in drawing and representation in, in landscape. Um, and you're deeply interested in the aesthetics of plant material, among other things. But what seems to tie all of those seemingly disparate concerns together is really this question of meaning you seem to be consistently returning to questions of how landscapes mean, how they produce meaning, and how designers might see them as a mode of expression, as an art form, or as a uh, as a cultural form. Um, in some ways, this begins, you know, as early as the first essay in the book, 1988's um, Form, Meaning, and Expression in Landscape Architecture. And for those that haven't read this recently, uh, it's an extraordinary piece of work. I mean, on the one hand, it operates at the level of a, a form of... Um, contemporary cultural criticism, right? So you're referring to the work of landscape architects of of, of some note, uh, Peter Walker and Martha Schwartz, George Hargraves, among others. But underneath that operating system, uh, really what you're doing is you're putting a foot in the ground, you're taking a stake on how meaning uh, might be understood in landscape architecture. And I was really struck by returning to it, uh, not having read it for a while, how clear your critique was. Um, you argue in that piece Again, 1988, recently, two important and, in your view, incorrect theoretical assumptions have become so ubiquitous that they have seriously weakened landscape architecture. The first is to confuse human landscapes and the needs and achievements that they embody with natural landscapes and their processes. Students, teachers, and practitioners alike demonstrate a lack of understanding of the relationship between the author, artist, designer, and the medium of expression. Second assumption is a new, then new, deterministic and doctrinaire view of what is, quote, natural and beautiful that has replaced older alternative views. Um, couched in a born-again language of fundamentalist ecology, this chilling, close-minded stance of moral suititude is hostile to the vast body of work produced through history. It's a stunning critique and uh, certainly clearly uh, articulated in, in lucid prose. Um, uh, you know, what issues or what topics were you you know trying to get at so clearly in this moment in the 1980s there were debates about the relationship between landscape architecture as a cultural practice or as a form of art or creativity on the one hand 
And on the other hand, there were, you know, ongoing concerns about the natural environment. Well, I guess um, what elicited that was uh, a feeling on my part that um, landscape architecture is a practiced at a certain level as an art. Um, it can be, it can rise to an art, but I think it's one of the most complex arts of, of, uh, that we have. I think it's one of the most difficult and the least understood. And the problem is that, well, the problem, there's many problems, but one of the problems is I was, I was struck by the fact that most of the field and most of my colleagues were operated at the level of instrumentality and of, uh, they were stuck at a level of, of concern about science and nature and of function, social and natural. And they were not taking on board the mental apparatus of uh, imagination in terms of invention and in the, in the, the relationship of people and their ideas about nature as expressed through what they were building historically. Whereas Asian thinkers, uh, you know, the Song Dynasty or, you know, Tang Dynasty or English uh, people in the 17th century, even before the 18th century, were very concerned about ideas of nature and how what we make expresses our understanding or some of our attitudes, not only toward it, but toward each other in it. And I felt that that was the subject matter of landscape architecture when it was an art. You know, to the degree that one talks about subject matter in art, and and yet the medium is so confusing to people because the the devices that you use to make the landscape are in fact the devices you're referring to quite often, and so in service like. I realized that you know the, the the criticism, some of the criticism of painting in the in the mid 20th century in the U.S. and in Europe about uh, trying to about being interested in the medium as an expression of uh, about itself, and that in fact in the 18th century, um, landscape architecture, landscape design may have become the first non how do I say, the first abstract representational art because it began to reference itself as the subject matter of its own design. And, and I felt, wow, oh, that's interesting. And then I realized, well, they were doing that in the first century AD. <laughs> but, but none of my colleagues were talking about that. And people in architecture, they're all talking about meaning and everything, purpose. And I thought, well, but gee, there's this other thing that is, it has to do with Heraclitus and and the, the Greek philosophers, and meanwhile, people across the street in Emerson Hall are talking about the difficulty of communication between two human beings, that are using the language. And here we are acting like, well, it's all about, you know, the door is here, and the path goes here, and the rain goes here, and the drain is there. And, and, and I thought, no, no, no. <laughs> yes, just as you expect architects to design buildings that don't fall on you, you should, you assume the landscape artists will do things where your feet won't get wet and the house won't slide down the hill. You, you assume that. That's, the, that's kind of where you begin. And then you decide you, to weigh the merits of their work based on the other thoughts it gives you and the sensual uh, pleasures and the intellectual references to things that, oh, that this reminds me of when we were at such and such thinking about the Civil War or whatever, you know, which can happen in a landscape. 
So that's what was on my mind. And I felt my contemporaries weren't there. It strikes me that um, I wonder if you'd agree with this this reading, Laurie, that you know a part of what's at stake there in that debate that you were you know instigating is really the status of landscapes modernity, right? This is a, a topic that appears occasionally in your work. And on the one hand, you know, beyond the kind of stylistic, you know, modern, a part of I think what you've been arguing for is um, the elevation of landscape to a medium of um, exchange, communication, cultural transformation, meaning. Um, beyond simple functionality. And, and part of what I hear there is a critique that has been well laid in, in architecture and, uh, and in, and in uh, the urban arts for, for, for many decades against a, a simple kind of naive functionalism uh, in, in, in a way. Um, I'm interested in this um, conception that you've developed in that essay and then across many decades of the complex relationship between um, you know, landscape as a cultural form and let's say the natural world, right? So you argue in this essay that on the one hand, you know, landscape derives its social and, and artistic value in part from its phenomenological richness, its phenomenal and immersive sensorial capacities. Um, it's also the thematic content. It's a part of why our work is valuable socially, let's say. But you go on to argue that in fact, nature is quote, the great metaphor underlying all of art. I found that a striking claim. I mean, I can't disagree, but I want to draw you out on that. But what do you do with that remark? Where do you go from there? Well, it is, and because how we describe nature in each period of thought and intellectual development, we keep changing our ideas about it. And um, if at one point, we thought of nature as wild, chaotic, not understandable, the force of the gods just doing things to us. Um, another time, we thought of it as being a kind of well-wrought uh, clock, that everything was mechanical, it all worked, it, it, everything was interrelated, and there was a, there was a kind of... We, we, we kept coming up with analogies and metaphors for nature, but we kept redefining what we thought nature was. And, you know... Uh, Einstein sort of blew the, that apart by saying, no, there's this, everything's relative. And, and the whole relativity thing sort of, you know, he, he actually saw that before the First World War when everything blew up and everybody thought that there, there is no stability in our cultural norms and our society. Yeah, it, you know, and art flew off in all directions. Um, but actually, I, for instance, my in my own development, there was one point where I was, reading a lot about ecology back in, I don't know, the, I guess the 60s. And, um, and I had this, there was this thought about the stable state, <laughs> you know, that there was a, something called a climax forest and ecologists people were talking about that. And then another bunch of people started doing a lot of statistical work and started working mathematically with populations and discovered that there is no such thing as a stable state in ecology and that um, everything is in flux, and that, you know, a couple of the Greeks had it right in the fourth century BC, that, that um, there is flux. And actually, if you reach stability, that is stasis, that's death. That is, you know, when everything comes to a stop, that's the end, it's death. You know? So the, the universe is expanding, life is changing, and, you know, we're, we've screwed up the globe and it's changing. Um, you know, we may be the next extinction. Uh, so that's a terrible thought. But for us, maybe maybe our extinction would be a good thing for the rest of the world. But um, the notion that nature, how we think about nature, 
might have something to do with how we design for ourselves the, the constructs we make in our environment. So one of the things that happened and when you were at Penn and, and then later at Harvard, when I was at Penn and at Harvard, back at Penn, was this fascination with process, the, the design as process, that maybe if, if one of the things architects struggle with is to make something permanent, like a pyramid or a building that won't fall down and we still go look at Doric temples in Sicily and think, oh my God, how fabulous with what's left is still there is so wonderful. There I did that the notion of permanence is, is in a way kind of folly and our poets have told us about that. <laughs> but because, you know, the only thing we know for sure is that we will die and um, we come and then we are here for a while and then we go away and something else comes. And, and that landscapes, we make them as designers kind of with the ideas that architects have and we try to make things that will last for a while but but we're really you know it's a sisyphean endeavor because of process uh, we make beautiful things that that start out looking kind of awkward like adolescence and then the, they turn into beautiful teenage landscapes and then they become great handsome things for a while and then they begin slowly to get into this beautiful decline and we have romantic ruins and then it's gone you know it's that landscapes if they're not constantly renewed and refreshed uh, or a building constantly restored and repaired you know uh, they die and so we've had a generation following me my students and your students that are more interested in flux and, and uh, process than I was probably, because I come out of a tradition, I guess, of architecture and fine art and wanting to make things that have some meaning and, and uh, purpose and use for people, but that they find essentially attractive and intellectually stimulating. And, and that means they that somehow just having a, designing something that is all about watch it change and go away, melt and disappear or grow and blow up is not something that appeals to me. And yet process is in the work we make. And so, so that, that's part of the problem that I've, I've danced around and haven't figured out what to do about. Speaking of, um, you know, continually returning to push the rock up the hill, you returned to this essay, of course, famously in 2011 uh, with a comment on your own work, uh, published in Mark Tribe's edited volume, Meaning and Landscape Architecture. And I wonder if you could just talk about the the practice of returning to your essay after um, a decade or more and, you know, debating with yourself uh, retrospectively. I, I tell you why I did that. Um, it was that when I wrote that essay back in whatever it was, 78 or so, I still was looking at... Uh, in terms of understanding the possibility of meaning in, in art and landscape, I still was under the influence of uh, the kind of Warburg Institute and, and various art historians who had been interested in iconography. And so I was, I was still too much looking at it through a lens of art historians of a post-structural uh, period, shall I say. That, that, that who were not Marxists particularly, but who were very interested in uh, uh, how art embed and uh, meaning could be embedded in art through iconography. And I was 
that filter I decided was just way too limited. It was probably inappropriate for a lot of landscape. And that I was much more interested in the possible expressiveness of, of form and of the materiality of things in terms of how they might embed uh, an imagery that didn't come out of a traditional iconography. I don't think I said it that way, but that's what was on my mind. And I would say that probably the um, working on the Memorial for the Murdered Jews of Europe with Peter and uh, Richard Sarah really helped me because, you know, my work with Peter, we were always looking for alternative sources of form that were non-Western Euclidean, that weren't uh, based on, you know, neoclassical uh, design and order. We were, we we're looking for other sources of form. You know, what else is there? You know, why would you, why would you always go back to these same things? And of course, Peter would fall back on the grid and I would fall back on, on, uh, erosion and deposition and other natural processes and together we would produce something and so i was thinking that 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 project led me to the aha here's something with where there's no inscriptions it does not represent uh it it, it is not uh representational uh figure it's not figurative but it was meaningful because it 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 spoke to repetition and me mechanical reproduction with no reason or logic and a deadliness and then how that bred a kind of its own disorder and its own illness and and the the the, the machine gone mad kind of quality of that monument uh, and then obviously it's about death because of the, we went to a lot of trouble to make sure that the all the concrete, well, we rejected stone because we thought it was too friendly. You know, stone has a texture. You can love stone. So we said it has to be concrete. People don't like concrete. But then we kept trying to come up with a finish that was dead, that wasn't lively, didn't have attractive sand. <laughs> you know, it, it, it seemed colorless. You know, try, you know, we had a lot of mock-ups of different concretes to do that. So the notion of the fact that from the the expression of the deadness of the color and texture, the mechanical deathliness of the re reproduction with no purpose or meaning, the the, the disorder, the, the the kind of the er eruptions that were beginning to happen, the things starting to tilt and tip, the ground falling away, the 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 the, the sense of, of unnerving quality of it, I felt was very expressive. And meaningful, <laughs> and but but people came to it, and because it had a name, it was a memorial to the murdered Jews of Europe. That name was such a filter and such a lens they couldn't that it told you, oh, how does this relate to that? And that sets, and then people have all different sorts of impressions. Um, some people were very upset that children play there and that. People were doing parkour there. That uh, there were outdoor lectures and classes. Uh, people were picnicking, sitting on them. Um, and I and Peter and I both thought, no, that's great. It's fine. You know, it's like my children used to. There's a when my son was uh, at St. Peter's uh, in kindergarten here at, in Philadelphia. The there was a burying ground right next to the school. <laughs> 
uh, that belonged to the early uh, Episcopalian church here in Philadelphia. And so the kids would play in the cemetery too, you know. So, and I thought that's appropriate, you know, that we we walk on the bones of the dead, you know, that that the land is the earth is alive and it's full of its past. And so I didn't mind that. I thought it, life goes on, but it still is a chilling memorial, and it still brings people up short. And to see it in the winter when it's gray in Berlin is really, it's pretty grim. This is the uh, the Berlin Memorial to the Murdered Jews of Europe, uh, collaboration with Peter Eisenman and Richard Serra, as you mentioned. The design competition, late 1990s, 97, 98, as I recall, um, designed and realized in the early aughts. An extraordinary piece of work. Um, I wonder, uh, Laurie, um, the extent to which you, know, you were you were trained as an architect. You you referred to architecture in many in many of your remarks. Um, the extent to which you know the, your background as an architect allows you to understand design as a kind of cultural project. It strikes me that in you know in my experience in landscape architecture, that's one of the that's one of the challenges, frankly, that you've referred to often in your work, which is the the challenge of you know misunderstanding what's really a form of cultural practice or a form of you know art uh, for something that's really much more prosaic and and potentially you know as you say utilitarian well I guess Charles one of the things is that um, like you uh, I, I was trained one way and I ended up working wandering off into doing other stuff but I never lost track of it um, because you know I actually started civil engineering which was is even more in a way pragmatic and mundane um, and what happened is I, and I ended up teaching in a place with Ian McCard where, you know, he was worried about the globe and, and the larger environment. And, and I realized that there is a, a, a continuum, there is a vast, long continuum, one might say if you use a visual comparison of a grayscale or something, from, from you know, large-scale regional and national planning down to the design of spoons or something like that on your table. And then in between, there's all this other stuff. And I, I, you can't do it all, nobody does it all. Um, but you can care about it all and you can think about it all even while working on only a part. And the part I chose finally to work on for 30, 40 years was a kind of in-between part where people touch it and it touches them and it, and, and Buildings are part of the medium. <laughs> you move buildings around. <laughs> you arrange the buildings as well as the roads. Uh, you 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 work with fluvial processes and and, and that sort of thing. Uh, and and yet you try to make the world richer rather than simpler and poorer <laughs> with your interventions. And and that that and you don't expect everybody to be on your wavelength. You you expect some people that think that, no, you should be working on these other problems. You know, right now, clearly, climate change is the biggest thing facing the entire world. It's the most important thing. And if we don't get better about that, it, you know, it won't matter much to my life, probably, but it sure as hell will to my children's generation and the generation after them, if they even have a generation, because it's it's so serious. It's that, it's that serious. And yet, you know, it's not like laughing as I walk past the cemetery that I just go on working, because... The value of all planning is in what gets built for people. You know, it's, it's, it's the actual making of the stuff. You know, the, the bench in the park, the park in the city, the city in the region. And, and so there's this nested order of concern. And so in my case, I, I think I wandered away from your question, but the notion of uh, 
the Ur project, the, the, the fact that a person like Olmsted be worried about the Niagara Falls and helping with Vox to try and preserve as much of the river and the, the land as he could around it for the sake of itself is kind of like the Good Samaritan. There's no necessary reward. It's just you do it because that's the right thing to do. Um, I think, I think um, he also was very concerned about domesticity. And so he was, you know, there, there's a man who worked at all, at most of our scales, regional scale, the city scale, certainly in Buffalo, and, and regional scale in, you know, Boston region with Elliot and his sons. But the notion of, I think all of us in landscape architecture, we care about all the different scales. We can usually only work at one or two at a time. Uh, we may have several projects going on simultaneously, but it's hard to do more than one thing at one time. And so sometimes one worries about small things and sometimes other things, but ultimately they all have some, some purpose and some aesthetic burden. You published a, a, a little over a decade ago now a book, Be Seated. Uh, just in our conversation already, you mentioned many, many times, you know, the body as the way that we experience the world and the relationship to whether it's, you know, deadened concrete in Berlin, which is meant to be alienating, uh, or other materials that are better uh, at hand. And so I wonder, you know, if you could reflect a little bit on the, where that comes from in your work. Is that something that was always present in your thought as a landscape architect? Or, or are there ways in which, you know, landscape thinking affords thinking about the body and bodily experience and the proximity of materials in a particular way. That's a very interesting, that, that's really an interesting thought. I, I had not thought about the fact I was thinking that way, but yes, um, that's probably the essay I should write next. It, it'd be an interesting essay. Maybe you should write it about what you, but, but the thing, well, where does that come from? Um, it's kind of a Thoreau Emersonian notion about drawing close to the world and having the world be close to you. Uh, and it may have to do with my childhood in Alaska. It may have to do with being spending a lot of time by myself out in the world as a young person, just me and a dog wandering around in the woods um, on the edge outside of Fairbanks. But I'd say those two years at 26 Mile probably had something to do with it. That um, the the being in the the physical contact with the world and our bodies, uh, I think is really important. And when I was began teaching at Penn in the Design of the Environment program, the undergraduate program, one of the books I gave the students was a book by Victor Papinek called Design for the Real World. I don't know if you know it, but it's a wonderful book. Uh, but he was interested in the notion of the things we touch and the things we hold and how the value for money that if you could make a computer out of cardboard, that'd be a good deal because then more people in Africa could have one. And so that sort of stuff. He, he was very interested in how we could deliver design uh, of quality and purpose, but that would serve human ends. And so ultimately, uh, I, I don't know. I don't know where that comes from, but I, I would say that art, art is sensual, right? Yeah, and, and that, um, you know, so my favorite drawings are in caves in the Dordogne. You know, those drawings are unbelievable. Those people were so alive. 
you know, they, they were running with those animals, you know, in those rivers and hunting them. They knew them so well that when they could draw them from memory in the caves over their heads, they couldn't even see them. It's like the people in the Manasca in Peru drawing things they couldn't see, but God could see them possibly. You know, uh, and they got them right. You know, they, the feet were in the right place. And, the, and so the, the notion of the, those, the cave drawings that I've, I've read somewhere that, you know, Matisse would envy the, the dexterity and the, the, the grace of the lines. Um, that one of the things about those is they were, they are very touchy feely drawings. They are drawings that uh, it's like stroking the back of the animal with the with the charcoal and feeling the ridge, the rise of the hump, and the sense, the tactile sense of the world, the palpable world, as it impinges on you and you touch it. I think is very important, and uh, I think. Uh, we kind of lose track of that, you know, just as I've written somewhere that that people forget, they somehow think people are separate from nature. <laughs> oh boy, boy, is that crazy. I mean, we're in nature all the time. We're part of nature, you know. We are natural creatures. There's nature, you know, and I always say in the lecture room where we are here, the laws of thermodynamics are in operation along with physics and, you know, everything else. And without homeostasis, we would be in real trouble. So we know all that stuff, and yet, what does it come down to? It comes down to this soup is really good, you know, or no, eh, too much oregano. <laughs> so, so there is that about design, you know, that that this fascination that has happened during the COVID era here uh, with cooking on the part of all the all the young millennials and everybody suddenly discovered cuisine and cooking and sharing recipes and what what is a sheet pan dish versus a you know, a, a multi-step dish. Um, but that's what's happened is people, it's almost like rediscovering yourself in the world. And I think landscape architects have the opportunity to help people do that with our work. We help. We can help people draw nearer to themselves and to their, their, their community and to the physical world and their place in it, and then take it seriously and want to treat it better. Um, I'm, I'm interested in, you know, that obviously you have been involved in, you and your partners and colleagues uh, at Hen Olin and Olin in publishing the work of the practice for many, many years. But I'm struck by how in this collection, how many of your essays refer to the work of your colleagues, not only, you know, historically, but also con contemporaries of you. I think it, it speaks to both the quality of the of the collection, but also the kind of generosity of spirit that you bring to your, you know, kind of to your writerly craft, you know, that not, not every designer of, of your prominence uh, spends this number of words and pages on the work of others. Well, thank you. That's, that's kind of you to say, um, well, I'm fond of landscape architects and landscape architecture when it's good. And there's a bunch of other people out there who are doing really good work. Some of which I envy a lot. Um, and so, you know, we should celebrate the successes of others, right? It just seems to be a, a natural thing one wants to do. Uh, and also because they're so different from oneself that it's always, I, I, because I was teaching, I was always trying not to say there's a party line, be like me. <laughs> so I was trying to, I was always interested in how many ways you might do something, what is another way to do something. And, and there's some of them that are, you know, they're really quite different from each other. But um, 
you know, I, I'm very fond of the work of many people. And people say, really? You like Martha Schwartz? I say, she's fabulous. I love her. <laughs> she's a real artist. She, she's irreverent, but she's very good. And her, her critical wit is, and her, her insight is brilliant. And Pete, you know, he's done work that I think, I wish I'd thought of that. Or, oh, but the, the project he recently completed, well, I guess a few years ago now in Australia, uh, and the harbor, I think, is dumb. It's so good. It's such a great piece. Uh, you know, how could you not envy the work like that? Or you know, some of Dan's work, uh, Dan Kiley. So it's. I think one should, you know, celebrate other people's successes and explain why they're good to people. So, so that they, you know, the the role of a critic isn't just to tell people what's wrong. In fact, people who set themselves up to know better than everybody, I, I kind of worry about. But because I think part of it is to help people see and understand things that may be either difficult or they haven't thought about. I, I, I've told you this before, you know, when I first encountered your work, it was at the, uh, the North Courtyard of the Art Institute of Chicago. And it was at that moment that I understood this is, this is a room that has been considered on such a variety of levels. And this is a work of landscape architecture. And that was that, that sense that I had of that moment was reinforced, of course, a year later when I came to Penn and then met you. I think you were literally the first landscape architect I had a conversation with. But it strikes me, and it returns again back to that, that quote in which the success of the field, its contributions socially and culturally seems to have been irrespective of its public literacy or legibility. Uh, and at the same moment, we seem to be um, in a moment when landscape architects and landscape architecture enjoy greater and greater uh, visibility, in, in part, I think, in no small part due to your contributions. Well, there's there's another dilemma and riddle underlying that statement also, and that is that there are certain projects, uh, and there's some projects you do where people will notice and they pay attention that, uh, that the artifice is obvious in some projects. Some of the stuff I did with Peter, for instance, <laughs> is obvious. But um, there are other projects, and some of my favorite projects, uh, not just by myself, but by others, where um, people come to them, they are in that place, they participate in it, it, it helps, it does something nice in their lives, uh, and they like it, but they Think it's natural they don't realize it's a design <laughs> the designer has been so self-effacing or has done such a good job of 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 uh masking the artifice that they they mistake it for the world given and uh, instead of the world made that it's an invention and so that's a problem when i did that project at mit with uh frank Gehry. And one of the things was like, you know, we're taking all this water from all these places and we're taking it and putting it down here. We're cleaning it and then we're reusing it in the building and we're doing that. And I, I was taken to task. I don't think it was you, but somebody took me to task for it in, in print for saying, but you don't show people what you've done. You know, it's too subtle. You, people won't get it that you did this thing. And so then when I did the little project at Yale, I just said, okay, well, mm -hmm. I'll show them where the water is and that we're treating it and there's plants here. And that that's actually before it goes back and gets reused in the toilets and, and irrigation and stuff. So the notion of uh, our self-effacement when we're playing at making something that refers to nature but isn't nature 
people think it's nature. You know, so Olmsted wrote about that tangentially in his report on uh, Mont Royal Park in Montreal, and where he describes planting. If you plant trees in a row, people get it. If you do something else, they don't. You know, the, the notion, but the tree is still, you know, not a natural thing. I put it there, but when he plants them in clumps, they, they think it's natural. When he plants them in a row, they think it's artifice. And they don't see the artifice at work in something that they like even better, which is peculiar. You know? So, so we have this problem of people mistaking our work for nature. And they also make the mistake of thinking that our work is all about plants. <laughs> and they call us when their roses die or something like that. Um, and when you're on a plane and, and someone finally gets out of you that you're a landscape architect, the person next to you, they immediately start, they either their cousin designed a garden or they have a problem with the neighbor's tree. <laughs> and because they go to plants. And then, you know, and about the time I start resenting that, I remember that actually it is the single element of our discipline, of our medium, that others don't actually think of as being central to their medium. It, you're the only person in the room quite often who is the advocate for natural process when you're you know, surrounded by lawyers, developers, architects, planners, engineers, and you're the person there thinking about the hydrologic cycle, you know, and, and about, you know, airflow and stuff like that. And so we do bring nature into the room as its advocate, which is something that is not the same as saying, I believe landscape should be an art. <laughs> You know, so so it's it's a it's a sometimes a bind, you know, because they want people want you to stay there and don't don't let the landscape get active, don't let it get too obsessed for us, you know, don't let it act out, you know. In um in, in organizing the book, you know, chronologically, you know, in addition to you know allowing you to return to a set of perennial themes about drawing and representation about. Uh, the aesthetics of plant material as a means of expression, uh, confusions about landscape architecture as a cultural form. Um, the book also provides a, a kind of retrospective of the past couple of decades about the the issues in our field. There is definitely an arc to it. And in that sense, I think the book is, um, you know, essential reading for people interested in the history of our field and its future uh, going forward. I have a, um, a, a quote that's been attributed to you by our friend John Beardsley, and I want you to dissuade me if I have this wrong, but Beardsley tells me that um, you were recorded as saying, this is uh, around the turn of the millennium, 99, 2000, um, it is hard to think of any field that has accomplished so much for society with so few people and with so little understanding of its scope or ambitions. <laughs> this sounds right to me. Beardsley said that? Uh, Beardsley quotes you. It sounds like me talking to myself. I think that's right. I, agree, I completely agree with the remark, but uh, is there something to do about it, and what should we do? I guess I had hoped that I would be writing for the for the general public, but but it turns out that most of the things I've written have not ended up in front of the general public, even if they could read it and understand it, which I think most people with a college education could understand it. Um, I think if they chose to read it, um, I think this is a book that I wouldn't recommend anybody try to sit down and read it from front to back. I think because they 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 are pieces that each one you know you could dip in and dip out, 
the order, that's Robin Carson decided to do it chronologically. I didn't know what to do. Uh, um, she, she, she blames me for picking these. I, I don't know. Maybe I did. I sent her a list and then we went, we edited it down because there's the stuff that didn't get in it, which is not necessarily less good, but um, she thought this was a coherent group of essays. I, I would say that um, the one thing people should realize is that landscape architects aren't the only people who make landscapes. <laughs> um, and, and that I, I think we need to realize that other people make them either knowingly or unknowingly. Uh, artists make them, uh, homeowners make them, developers make them, engineers make them, architects make them, all kinds of people make landscape. Uh, and that um, some people who aren't landscape artists have made brilliant things and wonderful things, and some, but many have made terrible things. And a lot of landscape architects have made terrible things. <laughs> it's, it's actually when you realize excellence is rare in all fields, it makes you frightened to go to the dentist or the doctor. But it's a, the fact that there's there's a, it's like some people say, well, that's not art, and I'll say, no, it is art, but it's a very bad art. <laughs> and the the notion of, of 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 that there's a lot of landscape design that is done by people who are landscape artists and a lot of landscape design done by people who aren't landscape artists. And just like most of the building done in the world is not done designed by architects. So, so it's a minority activity and apparently a minority interest, and yet it affects everyone. Well, Laurie, um, congratulations on the book and uh, thanks so very much for joining us. Thank you, Charles. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to Future of the American City, curated by the Office for Urbanization at the Harvard Graduate School of Design. This conversation was supported by the Knight Foundation and the generous donors to the American Cities Fund. To learn more, visit votac.gsd.harvard.edu.